You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Mosul and the Islamic State. Everything felt like a trap. Control of the night extends to dawn and then dusk. There is no justification for the brutal execution of Nicholas Burke. But remember, Iraqis were regularly being killed in the same way. Millions of Iraqis headed out to vote in spite of bombings and several mortar attacks. People will not overnight become democratic forces. The difference with Muslims, they all withdrew. By end of 2005, Mosul was the city of jihadism. And who was on top? Of course, it was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. The Mujahideen have reached a level which they have not reached before. I know six women who were assassinated in the very same place that I work. Despite their fears, the people turned against them. And when they did, the Islamic State of Iraq collapsed. Part two, everything. The Islamic State of Iraq tried to project an image of being ruthless and intimidating. A description I once heard was that the Islamic State of Iraq system of control was hard but brittle. If it could be cracked, it would shatter. So if the appropriate amount of military and intelligence resources were applied, if the population could be convinced that it was safe to rise up against them, the dominoes would start to fall. Two events proved essential to making that happen. The first was the surge, which President Bush announced on January 10, 2007. The situation in Iraq is unacceptable to the American people, so America will change our strategy to help the Iraqis carry out their campaign to put down sectarian violence and bring security to the people of Baghdad. This will require increasing American force levels, so I've committed more than 20,000 additional American troops to Iraq. The second was the Sawa, the Sunni awakening, which saw Sunni tribal groups rise up, confront the Islamic State of Iraq, Al-Qaeda, and other jihadist elements, as well as look to secure their local areas supported by the United States. Here is General David Petraeus, who was a key architect of the surge and coordinated coalition military activities through 2007 and 2008, working with Sunni Sawa awakening forces to ultimately crush the Islamic State of Iraq. Well, again, the surge of ideas did actually matter much more than the surge of forces, as important as those forces were in enabling us to most expeditiously carry out the new strategy, which was built on the foundation of the new ideas. So we essentially changed what we had been doing uh, 180 degrees. We literally went from Uh, a strategy that began to fail during the year leading up to the surge and in the wake of the horrific uh, bombing of the Samara Mosque that set off the terrible cycle of violence that had Iraq on the verge of a full-blown Sunni-Shia civil war. Uh, And we had to recognize the reality when the surge began, and that was that Iraqi security forces had really been beaten up and battered, uh, and that the decision to pull U.S. and coalition forces out of the major neighborhoods, the major population centers uh, in Iraq, but especially the neighborhoods in Baghdad, was a mistake. Uh, And that, in fact, we needed to go back into those neighborhoods, that you could not commute to the fight, uh, as we said, that you had to live with the people in order to secure them, 
we should certainly do that in partnership with Iraqi security forces, but also in a number of locations, uh, we had to take back over responsibility for the security situation uh, to enable those forces to be reconstituted, uh, retrained, re-equipped, brought back up to strength, uh, and then brought back into the fight. That was the biggest of the big ideas, that you had to live with the people to secure them, that we had to do that, not just the Iraqis, that we had to clear and then hold areas, not clear and hand off uh, areas. We had to clear, hold, rebuild, and over time transition slowly tasks from our forces to those of the Iraqi security forces. So those were the big ideas. And they then produced the operations that did progressively clear, hold, build, rebuild, repair, uh, and over time transition. Uh, this was the, uh, the reconciliation effort, which was popularly known as the uh, the Sunni Awakening, the Sons of Iraq program. We also had a Sons, basically, of, of Iraq for militias as well as for uh, Sunni insurgents. Here is Craig Whiteside, professor at the Naval War College and a U.S. Army combat veteran who led forces during the surge, working with Sawa groups against the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Qaeda. Now, the Islamic State defeat began around May 2007 with the formation of rival coalitions such as the Jihad and Reform Front, Jihad and Change Front, a clerical coalition, and several others that more or less signified a change in their political objectives against the occupation still, but receptive to negotiation with the Iraqi government. To be clear, the coalitions never turned against the Islamic State but it reduced cooperation and also included condemnation of the tactics uh, and strategies of the Islamic State. This stance by these coalitions uh, did hide the splintering of many of the large rival insurgent groups, uh, many of which joined the loose tribal coalition called the Sawa that actively fought the Islamic State in its core areas. The surprise flip of tribes and the splinters from the Islamic State's former allies, such as the Islamic Army of Iraq, Mujahideen Army, really impacted the, the newly formed Islamic State's ability to fight against the government and the coalition uh, simultaneously. It is important for our listeners to know that the Islamic State of Iraq was not the only jihadist group the combined forces of the surge and Sunni awakening had to confront. For us, it seemed like a 360-degree fight. We fought the Islamic State of Iraq, also called AQI at the time. Uh, we fought Islamic army cells and other rival groups like Jaish uh, al-Mujahideen and 1920s. There was the Jaish al-Mahdi on the Shia side, as well as the early Asab al-Haq, an extremist Shia militia, and sometimes all of these on a single day. Uh, so the complexity of this 360 degree fight as we as we understood it was was pretty mind boggling. I worked with Iraqis that I considered to be patriots uh, that were in the Iraqi police and army. They were doing their very best to serve the citizens of the area and end a civil war in 2006 and seven that was uh, devastating civilians, lots of innocent civilians, uh, and they were fighting a brutal foe, but foes on of many different types, not just AQI. 
or the Islamic State. When I left and when our unit left at the end of 2007, after a 15-month tour, which predated the surge but continued through the surge, uh, violence had dropped significantly, thankfully. Uh, still, I was, I was not convinced that we had solved any of the major issues facing the local community the, and the security forces that we supported. You know, the tribal awakening, although impressive, was just one more armed group that could not claim the allegiance of all the Sunni tribes, even in the area. Uh, and in fact, in Mosul, no awakening ever happens. And I think we should think about you know, why that is. Craig Whiteside highlights two very important points there, Omar. First, that while the Sunni awakening was crucial for defeating the Islamic State of Iraq, the strategy also inadvertently sowed the seeds for its resurgence. And second, that there was no Sunni awakening in Mosul. What are your thoughts on both of those points? What Craig has highlighted is crucial. Crucial for understanding both the defeat of the Islamic State of Iraq, but also its ability to come back. The strategy of supporting the Sunni tribes, mostly focused on Ambar uh, province, this was due to a belief among us, the uh, American strategists that Sunni tribes in Ambar would be able to fight against the jihadists, including Al-Qaeda and the um, Islamic State. There was this belief that only the Sunnis could beat the jihadists. And that meant giving money and weapons to the tribes. But loyalty paid for is loyalty that can be bought. And so when the money was finished, the weapons remained. But still the main problem, which is a lack of unity and poor governance, had still not really been addressed. After all, supporting the tribes to fight often meant that support to civil administrations and governance was not prioritized. When it comes to Mosul not having uh, an Isahwa, that's true. The reason is that Ambar was seen as the heart of the Sunni jihadism in Iraq, and so the Sahwa strategy focused over there. In Mosul, the central government, that is the, the Iraqi government, uh, sent the military to control the city and confront the Islamic State of Iraq. So, in Mosul, we had the harshness of the Islamic State of Iraq attacking us and trying to control us. And at the same time, a military-focused strategy by the, uh, uh, by the government. The counter-terrorism operations in Mosul really accelerated into 2008, with jihadist networks being attacked, militants be- being killed, and many jihadists, including senior leaders of the Islamic State of Iraq, thrown into prison. The arrest of senior leaders from the Islamic State of Iraq proved to be really important for two reasons. Firstly, it has since been revealed that many of those senior leaders informed on their fellow jihadists, and the information they provided was used in counterterrorism operations that captured or killed more jihadists and proved vital in tearing apart Islamic State of Iraq networks. So that was the good news. The bad news, unfortunately is that the prisons became incubators for the next generation of the Islamic State movement. They transformed the prisons in Mosul and the rest of Iraq into terrorism training camps. Kambuka, Bugreb, Badush. If you served time, you were seen as a hero. 
there are a lot of conspiracy theories about why so many people who became top Islamic leaders had spent time in prisons. Generally speaking, this is the reason. Ex-prisoners were often revered because there was this emerging folklore within the jihadi culture that prisons created real men, real believers in God and Allah, therefore real fighters. The prisons, like Kampuka, would prove to be absolutely vital in how the Islamic State of Iraq would rebuild. And we need to dig into those details. We must take our listeners into the underground planning, the strategies that this group devised to go from near decimation, almost completely destroyed in 2008, to controlling territories and cities and populations across Iraq and Syria by 2013-14. But first, I want you to take our listeners into Mosul. Take them to Mosul from 2008 onwards. What has changed? What is life like for Maslawis? In 2008 to 2009, everything changed in our life horror. The people kind of like the rhetoric and the, 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 the public discourse changed. People are seeking a new life as if, as if the, the first moment that I described of the early 2003 of this kind of like beautiful promise of democracy has been brought back again. The city is safe. ISI had no more control and they migrated to the desert of Nineveh on the borders, on this Iraq-Syria borders. And the city breathed again a fresh air. There were some attacks here and there, but it wasn't that much like uh, 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 affecting the life of the people. The city was crowded again which was beautiful because if it's empty, it means that there's something wrong. The city was, was full of life. Meanwhile, the Islamic State of Iraq is rebuilding under the leadership of Abu Umar al-Baghdadi and Abu Hamza al-Muhajir, leaders known as the two sheikhs and quite brilliant strategists and managers. It is around this time, in 2008-9, that the group produces two documents that provide extraordinary insights into not only the strategic, you could say intellectual culture within the organization, but the great belief, certainly amongst its leaders, that its insurgency method, with some careful tailoring, would bring them success again. The first document is basically a lessons learned assessment, put together by an unnamed commander within the organization that outlines the mistakes which had led to their own constituents, Iraq Sunni communities, turning against them, and so proposes strategies to improve future performance. For example, highlighting poor understanding of the local population as a strategic weakness, it offered the following recommendation. It's very important to notice that we can't utilize any jihadists' work in any country without analyzing the population structure and looking deep into their social and religious sentiments. Before anything, we need to collect information about the percentage of workers, religions, sects, ethnicities, political affiliations, resources, the income per capita, available jobs, the nature of existing tribes and clans, and the security problems. It's impossible for any group to continue jihad and rule if they don't analyze the citizen structure and know if they will be able to accept the Sharia for the long term and live this life and the afterlife in this manner. 
The second and one of the most important documents in the Islamic State movement's history is the Fallujah Memorandum, which was probably written in 2009. The authors of the Fallujah Memorandum methodically lay out a strategy for replenishing the group's ranks, rebuilding its support base, and setting down the strategic foundations to then escalate its insurgency across Iraq. Having just been beaten by Sunni Sawa by awakening forces, the authors of the Fallujah Memorandum recommend establishing their own Sawa. We, the Islamic State, call for the establishment of our own jihadi awakening councils, similar to the ones the Prophet, peace be upon him, convened at the Medina delegations. The idea is to cooperate with righteous and honorable tribal leaders, to develop security forces from among their youth, to protect their regions from traitor police and the crusaders' forces, and to completely cleanse the region. In addition to this, these forces will protect people from theft and mercenaries, and impose Sharia rules to be legislated by a Sharia judge. In short, these Jihadi Sawa or Jihadi Awakening groups would be established to build relationships with the population and engage in guerrilla warfare and guerrilla governance activities in their local areas. Where the Islamic State of Iraq may have previously prioritised the killing of US and other foreign forces, which they refer to as crusaders, their revival strategy prioritised the targeting of Iraqis, from security personnel to anyone who had worked with their opponents, who they deemed as apostates. Their strategy of violence was simple. For every ten bullets, nine should be directed toward the apostates and one toward the crusaders. Yet, the Fallujah Memorandum cautioned against an overemphasis on violence. There is no doubt in our mind that limiting jihad to military efforts alone is foolish, especially in Iraq. Sticking only to military jihad is extremely naive and will leave the righteous mujahideen out of the equation after the occupiers leave. We can claim that the next war will be primarily a political and media war. The mix of violence, politics, and propaganda proposed in the Fallujah Memorandum was ultimately designed to render the Iraqi government and military dysfunctional in the eyes of the local population. This strategy will prompt people to think that choosing such a government is not the right choice. It will also impact the Crusaders, pushing them towards hopelessness as all their hopes of establishing a strong government able to stand by itself are dashed. This will be because the Mujahideen were able to infiltrate their security at a high level. Perhaps most importantly for the story we are trying to tell, the authors of the Fallujah Memorandum were anticipating one vital change to the strategic conditions in Iraq, the departure of US military forces. It has been proven that waiting for the Crusaders to achieve their plan's objective, that of establishing a loyal government, before implementing our Islamic State project is a weak strategy. Everybody is getting ready to benefit from the day the occupiers leave the country. The winner of this war will be the one who can prepare and plan for the period after American troops withdrawal. This will allow the winner to promote themselves among people and to completely take charge of guiding Iraq directing it towards either the winner's approach or a betrayal, a nationalistic approach or an Islamic approach. In 2011, the Islamic State of Iraq got exactly what it wanted. After taking office, I announced a new strategy that would end our combat mission in Iraq and remove all of our troops by the end of 2011. Last year, I announced the end to our combat mission in Iraq. 
And to date, we've removed more than 100,000 troops. The tragic change that happened is when the United States committed its deadly mistake of withdrawing the U.S. Army from Iraq. Now, how did this have an impact? And why would we want them to stay? Because at this moment, when I say that the 2nd Division was holding security in Mosul and empowered the civil life, the Americans have found at that time a space of supporting the civil society as well as the Iraqi security forces without being seen. The concept of treason has no more no more has a value. The Americans sitting in their bases, but there is a collaboration between the two. And this, this was something accepted by the people. They liked the idea. But when they withdrew, they abandoned everything, Harold. They abandoned those who were relying on them. They abandoned those who were already who have already established the connection, and they thought that they are going to continue collaborating with the Americans in order to establish peace and uh, a sustainable political system. So what was the effect of this, you know, generally speaking, on people's attitudes to the United States and the Iraqi government at the time? And how did ISI, the Islamic State of Iraq, try to exploit these sentiments? They ignited the same fears that the people have been living, sectarianism and the negligence of the Americans, and also that you should never trust the Americans, which brought back to the surface what the Islamic State made the people, especially the Sunnis, because the, the sectarian rhetoric of, and discourse of Maliki made the people reconsider of we made a mistake when we stopped trusting ISI. And at that moment, if you follow the propaganda of ISI, would always speak in this discourse of, what did we tell you? Didn't we tell you that you cannot trust them, that you should trust us, and that we are your only guarantee to survive? The 2011 U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq saw much of the great work that had been done in previous years, especially that of the combined surge and Sunni awakening forces, quickly unravel. Here is Craig Whiteside again. The collapse and withdrawal of the U.S. from 2009-11, the collapse of the Sawa coalition during that time period, really feeds the Phoenix-like return of the Islamic State, both politically and militarily. And it turns out that 2011 would prove to be one of the most consequential years for the Middle East as the Arab Spring sweeps through the region. New beginnings for Tunisia. Its Arab neighbours nervous of how revolutionary feelings could spread. Fueled by social media, protests erupt in Algeria, then Yemen. Mubarak deposed. Egypt's 18-day revolution defies all... The Libyan revolution of 2011 was about one thing above all else, removing Colonel Gaddafi from power. The world's attention now focused on Syria. Will it be the next domino to fall? By this stage, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is the leader of the Islamic State of Iraq, and he sends what is essentially an expeditionary force named Jabhat al-Nusra over the border into Syria. 
In April 2013, al-Baghdadi formalizes his group's expansion into Syria by changing the group's name from the Islamic State of Iraq to the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham. This is where we get the acronym ISIS. Where al-Qaeda had been the largely uncontested flagship of the global jihad, now ISIS was directly challenging its mantle, and its propaganda strategies shifted accordingly. Here is Alberto Fernandez again. For the first time in history, a jihadist group in 2013 controlled the city of a million people. This had never happened in history before. Yes, you have the Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan, but this is a jihadist terrorist group. So they gain basically all the infrastructure of a city, all the, uh, all the, uh, uh, the paraphernalia of radio, television station, editing studios, all of that. And because the Syrian civil war was an international war that attracted international attention, that's when you see the entrance of all these people speaking foreign languages, having uh, media cap- capability. So it's for me, it's Syria that enables the ISIS propaganda to go from important and, and essential to really important. If you look, for example, at the propaganda of the Islamic State in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, it's good, but it's very Iraqi. It's like Iraqi propaganda for Iraqis and about Iraqis. It's, uh, you know, inside the family, inside the house. But when when they come into contact with Syria, it becomes transformed into much more of a global vision. I'm sorry to say that what happens in the second half of 2013 and the first half of 2014 is well known around the world. The civil war in Syria appears headed for the worst case scenario that the U.S. has feared. And now to Iraq and Ramadi and Fallujah. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, have overrun both cities. As we move closer to June 2014, Mosul and Nineveh province is really on edge. The social and political crisis is building and intensifying. People are worried about the security situation and ISIS. They are exploiting the crisis that they helped to create. Here is Rida al-Shamari, an Iraqi analyst and researcher who also played a key role in pushing back against ISIS propaganda efforts during this period. Their strategy was to make the Sunni people feel that they, 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 they only have ISIS and ISIS is the only defender they have. And of course, they, they, they benefited from the, the failure of governments and the, and the sectarian, the sectarian government uh, under Nuri al-Maliki. The music that is featured at the beginning uh, of every episode of Mosul and the Islamic State is The Curve written and performed by uh, the Moslawi musician Amin Muqtad. When we were reflecting on the weeks leading to those fateful days in June 2014, his description of what was happening at that time brought back terrible memories for me. In the day, I light the streets owned by the army, and the night they were owned by ISIS or Islamic States and Muslims. 
a means description of the days being owned by the security services, but the nights being owned by the jihadists, is also a reminder of Zarqawi's promises. It is our hope to accelerate the pace of work and that companies and battalions with expertise, experience, and endurance will be formed to await the zero hour when we will begin to appear in the open, gain control of the land at night, and extend it into daylight. In the next episode, we will explore what it was like for Maslawis living under the occupation of the Islamic State. But first, I want to take a moment and look back at the history that we have covered so far. I'm sure our listeners will be struck by the decades of trauma and violence and hardship that came before the war in Iraq in 2003, let alone everything that has come since. I want people to understand something about our history. The history of Maslawis, especially since 2003. Our lives have not been just traumas and destruction. That is not accurate. I want people to know that there have been moments of hope too. Many moments of hope. And I don't mean hope that is only in the mind. I mean real opportunities, practical reasons to believe that we could do better, that we could have a better life. The only thing worse than no hope is seeing hope crushed. As horrifying as the capture and occupation of Mosul was for the people, horrific, unimaginable death and destruction, the psychological devastation of its people, there is an untold story about the city's capture that casts an even more disturbing light on what happened and I think will really change perceptions of this history. Yes, those three crucial days, from June 7 to June 10, 2014. History is remembered in the big events. The big event was that Mosul fell on June 10, but history is experienced and lived in the little details. And it is the little details that most people do not know that will always trouble me. I want our audience to hear what Maslawis heard and believed during the confusion and the crisis of those days. Then make up your mind about my city and its people. You've been listening to Mosul and the Islamic State, brought to you by the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Mosul and the Islamic State is hosted and co-produced by Omar Mohammed, written and produced by Hara Ingram, with audio editing by Andrew Mines. The music featured at the beginning of each episode is The Curve, which was written and performed by the Maslawi musician Amin Mokdad. If you're interested in finding out more about the research that is featured in this podcast, please check out the ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement, published by Hearst and Oxford University Press, The Long Jihad, and a variety of other ISIS-related studies on the Program on Extremism website. And for all of Omar Muhammad's reporting as Mosul I, please visit mosul-i.org.